the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I sit down with beef consultant Robert Ramsey and head of the Farm Business Survey, Sasha Grierson, and we discuss the topics of organic farming, regenerative agriculture and holistic farm management, trying to get to the bottom of what the differences are between each of these principles and how they can be applied for the benefit of your business. Hello, Sasha, Robert, how are we doing? Good, thanks, Alec. Yep, thanks for having us. Yeah, good. Thanks, Alec. Nice to hear you here. Yeah, well, um, thanks very much for for taking the time to sit down and have a a chat with us, both of you. We really appreciate it. Um, Can I just ask, maybe we'll start with you, Robert. Um, Can can I get you both to introduce yourself, give a little bit of background for some of the listeners and just discuss a little bit of what it is you do within SAC Consulting? Yeah, thanks, Alec. I'm uh, Robert Ramsey, so I work as a agricultural consultant uh, working out the air office. I've got a specialist interest in beef as well. Um, so my job is mainly focused on helping farmers, uh, so delivering business consultancy and, and more a uh, certainly an emerging market a growing market is the um, environmental consultancy and and carbon uh, as well so carbon sequestration and carbon accounting in the business is a big part of what we do Uh, and in in my specialist role I I deliver a specialist beef advice across the country as well so uh, yeah a a good a good mixed role and and certainly pleased to be here today to talk about um, this pretty exciting topic. And Sasha? <clears throat> sure. Um, I'm Sasha Grierson. I am the Senior Project Manager for the Scottish Farm Business Survey. It's a survey of over 400 farms um, and we measure uh, granular economics and uh, we also do uh, carbon foot- footprinting through AgriCalc. So we're creating a nationwide, a national data set of agricultural statistics and um, in in the fields of economics and environmental measures. So so that's my prime interest with SAC. I also have interests in the food and and enterprise piece, um, looking to support and advise farmers on how to diversify, go into agritourism. And um, I used to be an organic farmer, so I have that kind of uh, lens uh, that I view a lot of my work through. Brilliant, brilliant. No, this sounds good. Um, obviously, this is the first podcast that um, Thrill of the Hill has recorded um, post COP26. I was wondering if I could just get some of your opinions on what you liked about COP, what you think some of the messages were that were coming out of it that, that you really think we should gravitate to as an industry, um, and just your highlights, if you like. I think, I think for me that um, if, 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 I, if I can just start off to kick off, I think one, one of the disappointments with COP was that food and food and agriculture, uh, given its, its interaction with the Earth's primary resources and, and its, um, uh, <clears throat> its challenges in reducing carbon footprint, uh, it was a bit of a disappointment for me that, that food and farming wasn't a, a key theme in COP. Um, I think that we all eat three meals a day. And when you think about it with with clarity, um, 
all our food comes from the soil and farmers interact with their soil on a daily basis. And so I think there was something a little bit missing there. Um, there were plenty of fringe events that did pick up on this theme, though. And I think the, 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 there was a lot of clear messaging that we re- need to rethink our food systems and that we need to rethink our food systems in the light of, a sort of, in, of, the, of the climate and nature emergency. Uh, and so I think that that was interesting for me uh, from what came out of it. Um, and also the kind of uh, the really uh, the, the, the kind of urgent nature of, of all the communications from from particularly the developing nations about that we can't now not do this and that we have to we have to move fast and with with conviction. I think I would reiterate that, you know, I think for me, it was good to see probably for the first time a real commitment across all parties involved that we have an issue and we need to do something. And, and you know, big commitments, big, you know, climate change is now top of the agenda. Um, and that's somewhere where it's needed to be for a long time. And we've, we've kind of brushed it for various reasons. It's been brushed below the carpet and forgotten about and now I think COP26 put a really put climate change front and centre on the map um, for me actually a, a positive for me, a, I, I take Sasha's point there that we didn't discuss food and, food and farming enough but what what I was pleased to see is that farming wasn't thrown under the bus as well um, so media wise we've been getting pretty hefty criticism and, and uh, lots of fingers pointed in our directions in our direction and it was it was nice to see that the the global issues rather than this you know single sector issue um the global issues were being discussed more fully on a personal level a, a real highlight for me we we actually met with a part of my job in the last few weeks has been to uh, meet various officials and and uh, both elected officials here and international ones um and host them on farms to give them a bit of an indication of what what we do and, and what farmers are doing so the highlight for me was meeting the um Californian Minister for Agriculture and, and her team uh, who were blown away really by the the sustainability credentials that we were showing them of grass-based you know natural systems in this country and, and you know the comparison between us and them which is drawn very often you know we often hear about the the cost of beef production in terms of water usage and things well in this part of the world or certainly on the on the farms we went to with her was really it was a non-event and we were you know we were driven we're, we're driving production from rainfall which is something they can't achieve so for me it was a the realization of the the diversity of global agriculture i think that's a really nice point robert to to sort of see it in those terms i think um you're absolutely right uh, the industry has taken a bit of a bashing and it, you'd be forgiven for thinking that, you know, it was all the beef farmers' responsibility to save the planet. And actually, of course, that's not the case. And so, yes, it was good from that point of view. I would agree with you there. And, you know, how amazing to meet the Californian Ministry for Agriculture. You know, California produces almost significant amounts of the U.S.'s food. And, of course, they're having terrible issues with drought. And in a way, it shines a light on what great, um, on how lucky we are in Scotland to have that most basic of, of resources of of plentiful water and uh, to be able to grow grow the food that we need. And it sort of puts our agricultural production into context. 
And, and I think it kind of it enables us in Scotland to be able to say, well, actually, we've got we've got a, we've got an opportunity here to sort of to be leaders on sustainable food production from from grass based systems. And, and I think that's that's a really exciting opportunity. She actually made a point um, just a throwaway comment, but one that will stick with me was, um, you know, how how can she improve the sustainability of beef eaten in California? And her answer to that was to buy it from Scotland. So, you know, whether you know that that's as I say, it was a throwaway comment, and I don't think that's part of their government's agenda. But it was it was interesting to see how how much of an impact we had, and and all we did was was show around and 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 explain what. Willie Harper does uh, on the outskirts of Glasgow with his beef and sheep farm. Brilliant, um, brilliant, guys. I, uh, Robert, you you've been on the podcast before, um, and so you'll be familiar with how this works. But on Thrill of the Hill, um, we are interested in discussing topics that affect sectors involved in the farmed upland environment. Um, now we all do um, a little bit of conservation work here and there, um, and natural capital is becoming more and more important to, to farmers and land managers. I wonder if you could speak to where natural capital fits in for you guys, and, and how important you think it's going to be going forward. Natural capital, you know, it's what the the hills and uplands are all about. You know, looking at if we look at the, the hills and uplands as a, an area to produce food, it wouldn't be your natural choice you know it wouldn't be your there's there's areas in the country better able to to feed the world but there's way more to what we're doing in the uplands and, and i'm really passionate about um you know i think we should shout it from the rooftops all the good stuff that we do and and the the, the story about farming having you know it's a, the three-legged stool of um food production emission or, or climate change and also biodiversity and i think the upland environment is where we can really do something really positive about a biodiversity really positive for in terms of a carbon sequestration storage and a you know producing low, low methane food or, or low environmental impact food as well so um i think that's where the, the three-legged stool really comes into its own uh, and uh, to be honest, I think it's a really exciting time for um, beef and sheep farmers in the uplands. You know, it's it's easy to see the challenges at the moment, but the opportunities are massive. Great. And and Sasha? Yeah, I think I think in many ways um, we we often view the the concepts of you know farming for biodiversity and farming for climate as sort of something separate to farming for 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 producing food and i think robert's really clearly articulated that actually it is possible to do all three you know all three things together and certainly um within my own organic farming experience that is very much at the heart of everything that you do you 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 farm with nature rather than farming against it and and it's it's like a sort of shift in your head that you go into. And once you make the shift and making change, making change in your own mindset, it's almost like the rest of it is kind of easy in a way. And, and with the, the right support and the right resources, you can kind of, you can make a lot of progress really fast. And then before you know it, you turn around and you've created habitats for, for wildlife in amongst your, your, your uh, farming for productivity, You've looked at the breeding of your cattle. You've looked at um, the management systems for your cattle and sheep. And, and it's sort of when, when you start to embrace and encompass 
farming for biodiversity, farming for climate, as well as farming for food, you you kind of very quickly you start to go on on quite a complex but quite an exciting <clears throat> excuse me another cough quite an exciting journey because it stimulates you to think about all these various steps in the chain of your of your agricultural practice and and certainly you know what's great about it is that you have this lovely joined up sets of joined up bits of thinking that 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 really dovetail very nicely together and and can produce a, a, you know a, a, a better a better environment a more diverse landscape um, and and often certainly in in our organic farming business often the, the decision making that you've made in amongst your breeding and your feeding and stuff like that it actually saves you time and energy and it's less work involved as well I think it's worth adding in Alec that the the current you know agricultural policy that we've got i don't think actually values or or supports that multi-factor um system that we've got so the the all that the uplands does isn't necessarily supported by an area-based payment and i'm looking forward to seeing what the future policy again policy change is always scary but i hope that the whatever the new policy is it's maybe a bit more competitive and it's a bit you know people maybe have to do a little more to get a basic payment but also there's there's reward there for for big stuff for for a real support for habitats and real support for um pushing things forward making making a real measurable change rather than just keeping things as they have been I think, I think robert you've just hit on something that's that's really important and it, it's a discussion that we've had privately before but this need to be able to quantify the benefits that the farmed upland environment is is having. I mean, we have developed carbon calculators now that, that can calculate your, your farm's total emissions, carbon sequestration. We know how to do that. We know how to measure it. And we've developed policies for that. Um, but the biodiversity discussion, that's still in its very early stages. And we're not quite sure how to, how to calculate that, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that carbon discussion has been, you know, there's been a lot of work going into that to create calculators that make very, you know, evidence-based assumptions. The challenge for biodiversity is even bigger. You know, it's uh, um, how we actually quantify things is, is a real challenge. And without quantifying them, it's, it's hard to then reward good performers and, and uh, penalise or, or incentivise good performance. Um, rather than just incentivizing the whole. Sasha, did you want to come in on this before we, we go on to the next question? Yeah, I suppose I think that, um, you know, many, many years ago when when the fir first, the, the, the concept of monitoring greenhouse gas emissions was first mooted, you know, it was also seen as a very difficult and challenging thing to do. And I think Part of part of the the problem around you know the concepts of, of measuring and monitoring biodiversity is kind of you know oh how do you measure nature you know how do you measure it uh, and yet we sort of have to find a way of doing it the big challenge is that we find a way of doing it fairly and I think um, it that that's that's essentially the hard the hard task just just because it's difficult to measure doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't try to 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 measure biodiversity it's 
the hard the hard part for me is to figure out how to do it fairly across a range of different farming systems within one country um and luckily it that's not at the moment that's not currently our task although although we do probably have some fairly strong opinions about how best to do it um nature scots work has been in in the piloting of outcome based assessments or their pobas work has sort of led them down a road of of creating some quite interesting digital resources um that can measure specific uh habitats on farm and it it's quite interesting to see where their their work has taken them over the last few years so i mean there'll be more about that coming out next year i would imagine um and so so they've done quite a lot of the hard work already there uh, but again i would reiterate it's making it fair across different farming systems that'll be the challenge i think really just an example of the you know the disconnect between policy so agricultural policy at the moment so Alec you and I do a lot of IACs in a year and and you know we sit quite often in the spring discussing what we do with gorse and broom and and these marginal areas that are now deemed to be ineligible for agricultural production and sadly I mean these are these are really valuable habitats particularly when we look at pollinators and look at a the, the smaller biodiversity um these areas are vital, and we see them ripped out basically to to encourage. And, and I've I've helped people to do it, and and that's to increase a claim or to to ensure that their um, minimum or, or their their uh, overall subsidy claim remains the same. And that's where I think we really need to quickly come to a point where we actually reward the those valuable habitats rather than tar them all with the same brush. So it's about mindset change for you, then, Robert. Yeah, and that's from the top to the bottom. So that's from right from a from government through to consultancy and, and right down crucially to the coalface as well. It's not um, it's a whole scale mindset change. I think that's a really interesting point. You know, those habitats you're talking about, Robert, they're really good habitats for livestock. Um, you know, they provide shelter. They provide uh, um, you know they sort of they 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 contribute to soil health. And, and it, how, you, how you change policy to be able to incorporate that nuance in individual fields and, in, and across, different, you know, across different farms, that, that's, that, that's quite hard. Uh, but it doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't attempt to do it. Right. So going forward from, from this, I, I think that was a really good kind of foundational discussion. But I've, I've got three kind of broad topics here that I wanted to hit with you guys and just get an idea of how you parse them apart, what the similarities are, what the differences are. Um, regenerative agriculture, organic farming, and then holistic management, this idea of holistically farming. It's a great collection of buzzwords. I wonder if we could just have a bit of a discussion about what they actually mean um, in practice and, and, and in principle. Sasha, do you want to jump in? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think uh, I think there's maybe one thing missing there. Um, there's another word. To, well, it's not missing, and more a word to add is the concept of agroecology. Um, and I, I when when these words 
having been an organic farmer and known a little bit about the concepts of holistic management, um, when when I first heard these phrases, regenerative agriculture, agroecology, I sat down and scratched my head. I was like, hang on a second, who's stealing my turf? And, um, And then I went, well, hang on a minute, what does it mean? And actually, I think... For me, the way I see these things is, is, is regenerative agriculture reflects practices. So that's kind of various different practices. Any farmer can access them. Um, often uh, it's the cropping farms that see that, that are very much showcase uh, best regenerative agriculture practices, planting cover crops over the winter, that kind of thing. Um, and the, the agroecology seems to be the theory and then organic farming gives you a framework and a sort of a, a, a set of rules from, from which to work, work by um, as regards, uh, um, you know, your rearing of livestock or your growing of crops or, your, or, or, or whatever it is that you're doing. Holistic management is a really interesting one because what it does is holistic management says Running a farming business is a is is a complex thing, and it it requires you to uh, hold in your head different concepts, complex and inter but interconnected concepts that have competing tensions within them. So the concept that you have to make a your, your business has to be profitable, but you have to look after your natural resources, your soil primarily, and um, but then also it adds in this factor that we don't really talk about a lot in the same context as profitability and environmental management. But it adds in the concept of social sustainability. You know, what's possible with the human resources that you have at your disposal? And, and that's what I love about the holistic management piece is that it allows you to think about the people because farming is full of small independent businesses. And that's actually a wonderful thing in Scotland, full of voices and opinions and characters and colour and variation. And so, and holistic management, you know, it sort of embraces that. And it understands that, that every business has its own set of particular challenges. Um, and it's often to do with the people and that the pace of change that happens within a business will be down to the, that human resource and the people that are in it. And everyone will have different goals. So what works for one business just won't work for another. And so for me, holistic management embraces all those different things um, and, 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 and allows for that complexity. Robert, do you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, that's an, an excellent answer and, and there's a whole load in there. Um, to, to add to that, I would say the, you know, it's almost describing a journey as well. Or for me, in, in a practical context, there's, there's often um, we look to holistic management for some as the, as the end point and the start point may be a wee bit of regener- regenerative agriculture or perhaps a move to organic. Uh, and then, but as Sasha says, it, it's a, this is not for everybody as well. It's not every business is different and how far we take that journey um, is down to personal preference. You know, it's, it's not for everybody. The one with regenerative agriculture, I think there's so many key and, and organics. There's, there's so many 
key principles from that that we should we should all be so conventional farmers um, should be looking and following these guys really closely and seeing the 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 key areas from that that start them on that holistic journey. So what what from those um, those systems what can we be pulling in? What can we be doing better? So is it a mob grazing? Is it a something to do with um, worm treatments or management to reduce anthelmintics is it clover is it you know there's so many options at the moment and, it, and that's why i'm so excited to be involved in, in all of this stuff that it's it, it, if anything it's making a diverse industry more diverse i think that's a really key point robert i what i what i love about this whole piece is that you know 20 odd years ago it was like are you organic or not now it's kind of, well, what practices are you using? And what it does is it means that changing how you farm has become very accessible. You can enter into thinking about farming for carbon and biodiversity in a, little, in a small way. You can start your journey. You can, you can jump in feet first and go the whole hog, go organic, convert to organics. Or you can just start by sitting down and doing some holistic you know, holistic financial planning for your business. And I think I think there's, we've got to have, as consultants and supporters in the industry and advisors, we've got to have a range of approaches to offer people because there's a range of different businesses out there. And that's the sort of beauty and complexity of Scottish farming. And I think, I think, I think there's something for everybody. There's something there for everyone to start on their journey and they can they can jump in or they can or they can dip their toe in the water and just make change slowly and i think sometimes the most the most powerful change is the change that embeds gently and slowly over the course of time because then people get used to it they start to wear the coat and talk the language and then they kind of go like, okay well what's next you know I think there's an interesting, you know, very worrying scenario happening at the moment for the the conven- conventional farmers listening. We'll, we'll all be aware of what's happening with fertilizer prices, and you know, there's a real drive because of that. There will be a real drive to farm a bit better, you know, and to to use less, or or some will try to use none, or start to use none. And there's so many principles and all these things that can be picked up on, and and there's no silver bullet, but there's there's certainly really good options there um, to build your your own sustainable business. Yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, you know, looking at looking at the really sh- very shocking fertilizer price rises, one sort of wonders: is this the beginning of kind of of, of, of volatility in input costs? That means that in a way, it's sort of to many farmers, they'll th- will, will they think actually, we can't not change in how we're doing something, you know, in that this is the year that we have to scrutinize what we do and, and, and try trial some different things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be a tough spring, all right, that's for sure. Just um, lingering on the on the regenerative agriculture um, section of this. We know, um, Robert, you may even have been involved in it, that um, Farming for a Better Climate has had their, their Regen Ag group running for a number of years now. They're doing some really exciting stuff in, in the Northeast. Um, but as far as regenerative agriculture is concerned, 
are the principles of regenerative agriculture then something that we should all be looking to to adopt within our own farming business do you think because that that's the kind of message that i'm getting from from both of you so yeah it's a good point alec i think again if we're if the target audience here is the the hills and uplands you know the the regenerative stuff really is is focusing on building soils in the in areas that have been you know in some cases devastated by monoculture and, and um, intensive production for for many years so the hills and uplands actually there's the regen principles are are good but the the opportunity to store more carbon and build more soil is probably limited in these areas because we've got so much soil and or so much carbon in the soil already um but onto those degraded soils you know there's an that there's a huge opportunity there to get stock back onto arable farms and get because i think that's the regenerative approach mostly involves a ruminant animal and putting dung back you know a rest uh, a break in the cropping cycle and and a ruminant dunging back onto that soil as well putting organic matter back in um so there's real there's real opportunities out there for people and, and for me it, there's also opportunities to bring young people into the industry i think this is maybe a wee bit of a tangent but i think there's a service that can be provided down the line with a young person with cattle or sheep who can go to an out and out arable farmer with some some poly wires and some poly posts in below his arm and um and make a start to you know putting soil back onto these farms where they've just got dirt at the moment no absolutely robert i think that's that's totally valid and it actually plays into my, my next question here and that is that we're hearing a lot of discussion right now around the role of livestock and, and in particular ruminants um, in the fight against climate change and, and biodiversity decline. Where do you see livestock fitting in in terms of holistic management and regenerative agriculture? I think I think Robert's described it very clearly there. I think, um, uh, you know, livestock, are, they're part of the solution. Um of course, they're a problem in certain parts of the world, but the way, by and large, we grow livestock in Scotland is is in a very uh, natural grass-based manner, pasture-based manner, um, and and livestock are great soil improvers. Um, if you talk to uh, Julian Bell over in the AgriCalc team, he says some of the lowest carbon footprints that they have are on mixed farms who have reintroduced livestock into their system. They're, they're using rotations, uh, so grass is part of their rotation, and that their, their carbon footprint is, is lowered because of it. So there's a sort of, um, you know, there's a real case to answer that livestock are part, livestock are part, part of the solution. And then if you go and look at, uh, you know, improved grazing practices and um, rotational grazing right through to mob grazing, I think Robert touched on it earlier on, you've got further potential to farm for biodiversity and, you know, farm for nature and biodiversity. And, and touching on that, Robert talked about business opportunities. Once you get into that farming for biodiversity and nature piece, you can begin to consider what other opportunities you may have, business opportunities you may have in, in your business. And you get into the whole piece about diversifying into perhaps some other, some form of tourism operation where you you bring people onto farm and you explain about what you're doing. Now, that, that's a bit of a tangent here. We're not really talking about that. But 
it's definitely a, uh, a, an income potential. And I think, so that's the other thing about the sort of mindset shift in farming is, is around, is around, well, I, I run a business. Does it just have to farm or can we farm other things like, I don't know, people coming to stay or farm tours or that kind of thing, engaging with the general public? I think to flag up, there's a danger. I'm going to go on my soapbox here, but you'll have to f- forgive me for that. The ruminant. So the question, I suppose, to to everyone is: Are, are we trying to meet targets, or are we trying to a uh, deal with the climate change issue? The challenge with ruminants is that they are on the surface; they are a a, a significant contributor to um climate change, no methane, it is a greenhouse gas, a, a potent greenhouse gas, and it's also one that we can't deny it. It does come from ruminant systems. So if we're looking to get to net zero or looking to you know meet the 2030 targets, the the ruminant may be an opportunity or, or, or could be perceived to be an opportunity to, to um, deal with those targets. But actually, on the whole, when you see what she does in the and the whole, the holistic approach, I suppose, when you see the the methane cycle and the a, the growth of soils, the discussion becomes an awful lot more complex, and the the value of the ruminant becomes much more much more clear. If you look at where McCain's are, so McCain's producing a plant based product, a oven chips mostly. Um, their goal is to half their the synth- synthetic fertilizer use in potato production in the next few years that probably will be easier to do now that the price has gone through the roof but the reason the way the way they're going to deal with that is they want to see a a massive increase in in fym usage in their um in potato rotation so you look at that and see from the the plant-based end of things the total reliance on on ruminants and and on dung i think You've just hit on something that's really interesting there, Robert. I mean, there is obviously the the conservation grazing aspect of having beef cattle in, in particular. Um, but but also the point about the dung is really interesting because we know that methane is an issue. But an even larger issue is the nitrous oxide that, that can quite often be the result of inorganic fertilizer use. So, I mean, maybe we need to get better at making the argument for the role of livestock as opposed to that. Yeah, I think there's, I think there is, there's, it's not just nitrous oxide, there's all sorts of other issues with the use of synthetic fertilizer. And I mean, you know, one has to put it into context, though, you know, synthetic fertilizer, artificial fertilizers prevented famine in Europe after the war. It's that simple. And, and have prevented famines all over the world. It's the, it's the incorrect use. And, and we're now only really beginning to un- uncover the full impact of of the the potential waste products or byproducts from the use of artificial fertilizer. It's not just nitrous oxide; it's ammonia, and and so so yeah. I mean, McCain's great ambition, um, but yes, they they have to do it. They have to do it using using livestock and and livestock byproducts. I think there's 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 something I just wanted to mention uh, there. You know, considering considering um, my own farm, there's the 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 methane that our cows produce is in the atmosphere for twelve years, 
Um, and there, there is never been, there's only 12 years worth of methane in the atmosphere. We've always had a similar number of similar stocking rate on our farm in the last 50 years, for example. So there's ever, only ever been that amount of methane circulating in the atmosphere and between our pasture um, and the carbon in our pasture. So in, in many ways, but every single um, litre of diesel that we've burnt, the CO2 from that is up there in the atmosphere and stayed there. And I think that kind of that nuance around around uh, around the impact of, of cattle, methane, and pasture-based farming systems gets very lost in, in the whole in the whole discussion. Um, and I think we can also consider in there that in nineteen seventy six there was three hundred and twenty million cars in the world, and as of two thousand and sixteen there was one point one point four billion cars in the world. In that period, the population of cattle has remained one billion head of cattle. So the the the, the methane from cattle isn't a growing issue. It's a you know it's it's pretty much set. And as as you've put it pretty clearly there, Sasha, it's a it's a short term cycle. Mm-hmm. But it comes back to your point about about you know what are we trying to achieve? Are we are trying to achieve true sustainability in our farming systems and our food production systems, or are we trying to just meet it? Are we trying to meet a target? There was one other thing I wanted to go back to there in in this whole point was that um, you know we can't really in today's world leave marginal land unproductive, and that marginal land is often grassland. And how do you turn grass into food when you put ruminant livestock onto it? You also improve it, and you improve the soil, and you 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 know optimize carbon storage. I wouldn't say you increase because Robert's pointed out those soils are often very full of carbon, but you optimize your carbon storage there. And and if you've improved that land um, and you've put in you know shelter and and you've allowed the landscape the, the gorse to be left to 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 create havens for wildlife and biodiversity, then. You know, you are you are achieving that that three legged stool of farming for food, climate, and biodiversity. So, so you can't leave that marginal land unproductive. And ruminant livestock is the only way to turn that grass that grows there into food. Conscious um, that that I, I I don't want this to become overly be focused, although I think it's an important aspect of the discussion. It does, however, sound like both of you are in your own way advocating for. A mixed agricultural unit. It does sound like we're we're almost talking about traditional farming, the the, the farming practices that would have been more common 50, 60, 70 years ago. I think we need to be cautious with that as well, Alec. There's a, a definite need for you know, in the last twenty years we've focused on specializing. So we've become specialist dairy producers, beef producers. You know, there's there's more and more focus on the on being good at what you do and I, I don't think that that goes away that need to be outstanding at what you do is is where we need to be in a you know a commercial environment and probably an increasingly commercial environment but there are there are roles for or, or huge roles for cooperation here as well and, and bringing others into the mix um to to produce a more um a, a bit more variety a bit more diversity across your business when it comes to mixed farming, you know, if you've if you've got the farm to do it, if you can if you can crop, if you can have some control over your your feedstuffs and have a rotation, um, 
you know, there's a, a real advantage there. Not all farms are, are, are in that position. And I, I don't think we want to go back to growing oats at 1,500 feet. And, you know, there, there's a there's a, a happy medium in here somewhere that we, we, uh, we change what needs to be changed while also acknowledging the limitations of some of the upland areas. I think I think that's really key. Um, I mean, for me, Alec, I would I would I would advocate that that the kind of the holistic management principle that you've got to as a farming business, you've got to figure out what what's best for you. Um, there's no denying that specialism brings benefits, and it brings um, it brings uh, economies of scale. It brings you know scrutinising cost management. It also is just it sort of makes life easier to do one thing or what, or two things. But, but if, if that's not working financially for your business, then, you know, is this the time to start looking at, at different things? There's a, there's a bit of a shakeup going on with agricultural policy change, Brexit, volatility and input costs. You know, sometimes, sometimes for some people, it's a kind of, well, hey, what can I do? And it becomes a sort of eureka moment time when there's a lot of change going on, when people just go, right, I've decided I'm going to do this. And I think that, you know, looking at mixed farming system can be one thing that that you could potentially have a look at. That's kind of my, that's my strong feeling about it. Um, And I think kind of cross-cutting the the regen ag discussion, the, the organics, um, and the holistic management. In a previous episode of this podcast, we had uh, Dr. Bill Crooks on and we discussed soil management and improvement. Wondering if, if both of you wouldn't mind commenting on where you see soil fitting in to the discussion that we've had and, and what farmers can do to, to build their soil. I know, Robert, you kind of touched on it earlier. So that, I mean, it, soil, we are not beef and sheep farmers at home we are grassland farmers you know the soil is we just happen to use a beef and sheep to harvest the or to make use of the resource we've got the soil is absolutely fundamental to everything that we do and soil health is is happily now a word that's or a phrase that's banded about a lot and if we can you know whatever we can do to improve soil health and improve a and and grow soils you know there's there's huge huge benefits across the board and they Certainly, I think the the mob stocking of of again it tends to suit beef cattle better than it does sheep. But the mob mob stocking of a principles with a, a very short sharp grazing period followed by a very long rest period is undoubtedly a, a phenomenal way of of turbocharging a soil and, and really. Um, getting things going whether that's in an upland environment or, or right down to the the very best of the lowland stuff as well yeah i mean I, I sort of tend to come back to the 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 concept that all our food comes from the soil and you know we forget that at our peril um and also soil is full of life it's it's um and we don't fully understand the soil. I'm going to sound quite touchy-feely here, but it's we, we, we don't have a full understanding of our soil biology, soil chemistry, soil physics, and the interaction between all of those things. 
And what we do know and what the soil scientists at the JHI will tell us is, is that we need to improve the organic matter content of our soils. And um, as Robert's just alluded to there, there are, there are methods where you can really do that quickly. And obviously, there's a point at which too much organic matter is, is becomes, you know, you end up in a peat bog. Um, but but there's, there's a long way to go with that, with, with improving the organic, ma- organic matter in our soils. Just sticking on, on the topic of soil for, for a minute here, Sasha and, and Robert, while I don't think any of us would advocate that all businesses in Scotland go organic, I'm wondering whether or not there is a perceived benefit or, or, or an actual benefit to, to soil health from organic practices. Yeah, it's a good question, and and certainly I, I would agree with you. The the whole of Scotland going totally organic, I don't I, I don't think there's an appetite for that. I don't think we you know we that's a a different discussion. But soil health is it's hard to define. You know, it's a it does get thrown around as a you know a, a bit of a buzzword. But if we think about the 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 principles, I suppose of life on Earth, we all rely on the top inch of topsoil and we all rely on bees and pollinators and if we look at what and it's not it's not so much even what we are doing just now it's what we've done in the last 50 60 70 years basically post-war if we've had too much of something we spray something on to kill it and if we've not got enough of enough of something we spray something else on to put it in its place balance is all you know, things are, have gone out of kilter and, and actually the collateral damage that we've we've created based on killing and adding has been pretty grim. And, and I think we need to watch. We don't, we, we can't undervalue that. We can't under underplay the the role we've had in, in biodiversity loss and, and certainly soil loss as well. So I think is organic entirely organic the way forward? Probably not. But I think these organic principles are so so important, and and I would say um, there can be no doubt that an organically managed soil uh, will be more diverse or unhealthier than a, a, a conventional counterpart. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Robert. Um, certainly, if if you if you take the concept that if you if you put something on a patch of ground to kill it, uh, to kill things that you don't want in it, you are killing life. And, and there is no denying that um, soils, soils are naturally full of life. And if you haven't been killing things um, in the soil, then, then you will have a more diverse life and you will have a more balanced soil ecosystem you know, down there in the soil, there's an ecosystem going on. And we really have very, we're only barely scratching the surface of it. We also have a tendency, um, as sometimes as sort of, you know, when we look at agriculture as a science, to be quite reductionist in our approach. So we want to kind of break down what is in your soil. And actually, the whole point of soil life and soil biology and chemistry and physics is that all these things interact. And, and create, you know, the sum of the, the sum of the whole is greater than, no, the sum of the parts. No, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, so from our own practice here uh, in our, in our, um, on our organic farm and, and testing our soils, uh, we have organic matters of routinely between 6 and 
and uh, in our soil, we won. We entered into the Highland Show best best uh, soil competition, and we won. Hooray! That was very exciting. And when we talked to the soil scientists in the JHI, we were kind of like, so you know, we thought they would have some amazing kind of long, big chemical report uh, full of interesting kind of scientific stuff. And they said, well, actually. What we do is we open all the samples up and the first thing we do is we smell them and we put half of them aside and then we run them through our hands and we we we, we kind of get a sense of the of of, of the, the sort of friability of the soil and and i thought that was fascinating that there's a there's a sort of an, there's a, a kind of an organoleptic approach to to assessing soils and um, that they were taking now obviously they're soil scientists uh but but that was an interesting thing from our own experience. Should the whole of Scotland go organic? No, it's not going to suit everybody. Um, and it would lead to some quite odd interruptions in, in our supply of, of commodities in Scotland and, inter- and quite significant interruptions to, to, uh, to, to farming businesses cash flow. Um, so, so, but there's no denying that what's really lovely about the whole Regenag uh, holistic management discussion, organic discussion, is that you know practices within all of these things are things that cross pollinate organic farming, conventional farming, and it's nice to see those barriers breaking down and people just doing good stuff, you know, thinking differently, doing good things, preserving carbon, thinking about their their biodiversity on their farm and how they can improve it, whichever way they do it. I think the the challenge, I suppose, should if the question was should every organic, should every upland farmer be looking to be organic? I think they should be looking at organics. They should be looking not to become it, but to look at the the principles as we've said throughout. And to to really frame that one, I would say if we look at what you know a, a ton of fertilizer at the moment is is not far away from seven hundred pounds. Um, imagine what you could do if you take. 700 pounds which would maybe let's say that's going to fertilize 10 or 20 acres in an upland setting um imagine how much you can do with regards to infrastructure for rotational grazing with regards to you know developing a system that relies less on fertilizer given you've you've got a budget give yourself a budget of a ton of fertilizer and and see what you can do this year and, and i think there's an exciting challenge there and and a, an exciting opportunity to actually, if we can start rotating and start managing grass better, you'll grow more grass and ultimately be much, much less reliant on fertiliser. I think that's that's a, a nice approach. You know, <clears throat> take take stop doing one thing uh, or a bit of one thing and, and say, let's try doing something else. And I think the, the key bit there is that bit, that phrase you use, Robert, growing more grass, you know, the, the who wouldn't want to get a third more feed out of their, <clears throat> out of uh, more grass out of their field, you know, that, that just sounds like good, that sounds instinctively like not only, um, uh, well, it just sounds like sound financial management, doesn't it? Yep. See, just um, dovetailing back to the beginning of this conversation, um, in in light of of what we said about COP earlier on, would it be fair to say that that Scotland is is a leading country in terms of the discussion around regen ag, the discussion around holistic management, and, and in, indeed organics? 
Um, and, and if that's not the case, I mean, are there any good international examples of countries or, or farms that are doing really nice work? Oh, that's a good point. I think, um, I think that if we think about the consumer for a moment, the consumer perception of organics uh, is probably the Europeans are way ahead, the French, the Germans, um, Netherlands, the Danish, they're way ahead. Consumers, consumers buy and shop and eat lots more organic food. It's something like 20% of their marketplace in some European countries. And so organic has nothing like that penetration here in, in, the, in the Scottish uh, food, you know, uh, food basket. Um, so in many ways, is Scotland a leader? I think that because we're a nation that grows a lot of grass and we have a lot of water, I think, I think we, we, there's a realisation that we have the opportunity to, to, uh, to lead the way. Yes. Whether it's actually happening in practice, I'm not so sure. What do you think, Robert? I would agree with that. And I think we'd say that we're not a world leader, but we have some world leaders, if that makes sense. We've got some amazing mm -hmm. people doing some really amazing things. Um, and also we've got a job of work to do to get you know, more people convinced and more people on this journey. Um, and, and I think... You know, we need to walk the talk. We need to, we, we tell, often I hear that we produce the best beef in the world. And we do. We do produce some of the be best beef in the world, but we also produce some um, some substandard beef. You know, that there's a, and that's just an example. You know, I think being a world leader is a, you know, is a, is a real challenge. The the principles of, of regen obviously come from uh, America and Africa. So it's actually the, holistic or, or the the long grass grazing principles are they're not british principles to start with they're not scottish principles so we're all learning them and we're, we're um, certainly I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying following that journey and, and getting helping farmers and indeed driving my own business in that direction as well but are we world leaders not yet but i think there's a, certainly an aspiration and a and a definite ability out there to become a world leader in the, in the near future yeah, I think I think that the regenerative grazing, um, the holistic grazing thing, works brilliantly in in dry dry climates. The trick is is adapting it to to our wet climate. And I know there's great work being done by Poppy Freighter and and others in SAC who are sort of leading groups of farmers to 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 push forward in in this field. And I think. That's the other thing about all of this. You know, at the end of the day, research is one thing, but it's got to be disseminated out onto farm. And farmers in themselves, they're going to adapt these principles to suit their own particular field shapes and sizes, their own, their own particular soil types, the, the, and, and also what land they have available for them. And I think, um, so in many ways, it's hard to, to say, oh, we're world leaders. I think we just... We're just adapting to to new new ideas and new and new thoughts and um, and and that's that's kind of how it has to be, you know. Ideas have to be turned into practice on the farm. And and just just on that, um, I, I think Robert used a really 
nice phrase there, amazing people doing amazing things. Robert will be familiar with the way that I like to draw this podcast to a close. I'm, I'm going to ask you both, um, what have you seen within the industry or, or within the sector uh, here in Scotland? Um, what good practice or, or innovative idea would you like to, to draw attention to as, as a kind of final thought? So one from me to start with is a, I think a, an alternative way of, of wintering cattle is a move to a bale grazing and, and, and mob stocking. Um, so the that was driven, obviously that's a, one of the regen principles is um, wintering cattle on a, a living crop and keeping a living root in the, in the ground at all times. The, for me, that from a, from a, conventional cost saving perspective as well i think it's a, a phenomenal tool and it's a step on the step in that direction of of improving utilization of grass on your farm and there's a number of people particularly in fife we've done i did a podcast with sam parsons at Balkaski and i know he and a few neighbors are, are using these these principles and, and getting on really really well with them yeah, we love our bale grazing. It's great. Um, it, it works really well. For, for me, I think uh, the advent of the use of herbal lays is particularly exciting in, in grassland management. I, you, you walk through a field, and, you know, they can, they can flower. Um, well, you can have up to 19 different species in a, in a herbal lay mix. They're not cheap. Um, but you can have, have up to that number of species. If you think about putting that number of different species in a sward and you think about all the different flowers they produce, all the different root depths they produce, they, they'll be bringing up uh, nutrients from levels of the soil that, that traditionally in a ryegrass sward it wouldn't touch. And I think, I think that um, the, the yield of things that are currently not monetized, like pollinators, um, and the, the, in the reduction in the use of worming uh, products for, for animals that are kept on these kinds of uh, herbal swords, we haven't yet fully grasped the kind of the monetary value of, of those. Um, but apart from anything else, they just the animals thrive amazingly well on these, on these herbal lays. And also, so you get improved growth rates. It's a, it's a kind of win-win all round. And um, so that's the one the one big innovation for me that I feel is is that I find particularly exciting. Could I add in another one, please, Alec? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a much more boring and geeky one, but I find it really interesting now to I mean, daily we are getting phone calls about uh, people wanting to do a carbon audit. And this is people who genuinely want to do one to find out where they're at. And the theory there is if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. So I, I'm really quite excited at the, the number of people who are, who are really wanting to engage with the, the climate discussion. And once we can get them, find out where they're at, set that benchmark, we can then start the discussion with, you know, where the, the low-hanging fruit is, where we can start making a change and really start heading towards that truly sustainable business that we're all seeking. I, I think on that note, Robert, that's a, a really nice point to, to draw the, the podcast to a close. I'd just like to, to thank both of you for coming on. Re really appreciate your time this afternoon. Um, and uh, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye now.